Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right. Make it scream, make it burn. Leslie Jameson writes that with these essays, she wanted to find, quote, a kind of primal cry inside the ordinary house, the ordinary marriage, the ordinary morning. It's about looking at something so closely that you feel it starting to smolder under your gaze. She wanted to, quote, make life scream, make it burn, make it funny, make it strange, make it sing. The subjects of these 14 essays range from past lives to weddings to the world's loneliest whale. Jameson is the author of the New York Times bestselling essay collection, The Empathy Exams, as well as the novel, The Gin Closet, her study of writing, intoxication, and recovery, The Recovering, was also a Times bestseller. I'll say that I read The Recovering in a particularly dark and confusing moment in my life, and I attribute some of what got me through to the sneaky vividness and wisdom of that book. A National Magazine Award finalist, she has contributed to publications including The New York Times Magazine, The New York Times Book Review, The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, The Virginia Quarterly Review, and The Oxford American. She lives in Brooklyn and directs the graduate nonfiction program at Columbia University. Chris Krauss is the author of four novels and three books of art and cultural criticism. Her first novel, I Love Dick, imploded the form of the novel and was also adapted for television. In 2017, she published After Kathy Acker, the first authorized literary biography of Acker, um, which if you have two hours and have read it and want to talk about it, I will sit with you for many and talk about it. Her new essay and story collection is called Social Practices, which you also have copies of at the back. She is co-editor of the independent press Semiotext and teaches writing at Art Center in Pasadena. We've got copies of Make It Screw, Make It Burn available for sale at the front, as well as a number of other books by both of our writers tonight. Uh, we hope you'll pick up a copy or two or three and stick around. We'll have a signing line for me against this book bookshelf after the reading, so maybe if everybody can clear out of your chairs, that'll help us clear some space to get that going. Um, Jameson has mentioned that she has a special stamp that she is going to use, two stamps, to stamp the books as well as sign them, so something to look forward to. All right, without further ado, uh, let's see Jameson, Make It Scream, Make It Burn. Thank you so much for that introduction, and uh, it's, I'm glad to know the recovering came to you in a, in a dark moment. Um, thank you all for coming out. I am from L.A. It always, <laughs> some folks here who know that firsthand, um, uh, and so it always means a lot to me to be back here reading, uh, and also I wanted to mention that this book is dedicated to my father, um, whose birthday it is today, who is in the audience with us here tonight. So happy birthday to my dad. <laughs> I, I wanted, as a special birthday gift, I just wanted to embarrass him at the beginning of the night. Um, I am going to read a little bit from an essay in the collection called The Museum of Broken Hearts. And then, Chris, I'm so so grateful that you were willing to come out tonight. I'm excited to talk, uh, and then we'll hear some questions from all of you. Uh, yeah, so this is the Museum of Broken Hearts. The Museum of Broken Relationships is a collection of ordinary objects hung on walls, tucked under glass, backlit on pedestals, 
a toaster, a child's pedal car, a handmade modem, a toilet paper dispenser, a positive pregnancy stick, a positive drug test, a weathered axe. They come from Taipei, from Slovenia, from Colorado, from Manila, all donated, each accompanied by a story. In the 14 days of her holiday, every day I axed one piece of her furniture. One of the most popular items in the museum gift shop is the Bad Memories Eraser, an actual eraser sold in several shades. But in truth, the museum is something closer to the psychic opposite of an eraser. Every object insists that something was rather than trying to make it disappear. Donating an object to the museum permits surrender and permanence at once. You get it out of your home and you make it immortal. She was a regional buyer for a grocer and that meant I got to try some great samples, reads the caption next to a box of maple and sea salt popcorn. I miss her, her dog, and the samples, and can't stand to have this fancy microwave popcorn in my house. The donor couldn't stand to have it, but he also couldn't bear to throw it away. He wanted to put it on a pedestal instead, honor it as the artifact of an ended era. When it comes to breakups, we are attached to certain dominant narratives of purgation, liberation, and exorcism. The idea that we're supposed to want to get the memories out of us, free ourselves from their grip. But this museum recognizes that our relationship to the past, even its ruptures and betrayals, is often more vexed that it holds gravity and repulsion at once. Exhibit one, clamshell necklace, Florence, Italy. It's a simple necklace, a tiny brown striped clamshell tied to a black leather cord. The shell was gathered from a beach in Italy and attached to the cord by means of two holes drilled into the shell with a dental drill. The person who made the necklace for me was a dental student in Florence at the time. He did it secretly in one of his classes while he was supposed to be learning how to make crowns. I wore that necklace every single day until I didn't anymore. When I visited the museum in Zagreb, Croatia, where it occupies a Baroque aristocratic home perched at the edge of Upper Town, I was on my own, though almost everyone else had come as part of a couple. The lobby was full of men waiting for wives and girlfriends who were spending longer with the exhibits. I imagined all those couples steeped in schadenfreude and fear. This isn't us. This could be us. Before flying to Zagreb, I'd put out a call to my friends, what object would you donate to this museum? And got descriptions I couldn't have imagined a clamshell drilled by a dental student, a steel guitar slide, a shopping list, four black dresses, a single human hair, a mango candle, a penis-shaped gourd, the sheet music from Rachmaninoff's Concerto No. 3 for piano. One friend described an illustration from a children's book that her ex had loved when he was young. 
showing a line of gray mice with thought bubbles full of the same colors above their heads, as if they were all dreaming the same dream. The objects my friends described all reached toward obsolete past tenses, that time we dreamed the same dream. The objects were relics from those dreams, as the museum exhibits were relics from the dreams of strangers, attempts to insist that these dreams had left some residue behind. When I was young, before my parents separated, I believed that divorce was a ceremony just like marriage, only inverted. The couple walked down the aisle of a church, holding hands, and then, once they reached the altar, they unclasped their hands and walked away from each other. After a family friend's marriage ended, I asked her, did you have a nice divorce? It seemed like a polite question. An ending seemed like something important enough to justify a ritual. When performance artist Marina Abramovich and her partner Ulai decided to end their 12-year relationship, they marked its conclusion by walking the length of the Great Wall of China. People put so much effort into starting a relationship and so little effort into ending one, Abramovich explained. On March 30, 1988, she started walking from the eastern end of the Great Wall, the Bohai Gulf on the Yellow Sea, and Ulai began walking from the western edge in the Gobi Desert. They each walked for 90 days, covering roughly 1,500 miles, until they met in the middle, where they embraced to say goodbye. At a retrospective of Abramovich's work in Stockholm nearly 30 years later, two video screens showed scenes from their respective journeys. One screen showed Abramovich walking past camels on hard dirt covered with snow, while the other showed Ulai hiking with a walking stick over green hills. The tapes were running on a continuous loop, and it seemed beautiful to me that on those screens, decades after their breakup, these two lovers still walked constantly toward each other. If every relationship is a collaboration, two people jointly creating the selves they will be with each other, this collaboration can sometimes feel like tyranny, forcing the self into a certain shape, and it can sometimes feel like birth, making a new self possible. Sometimes the comet tail left behind, the dresses you wore, the lipstick you tried, the books you bought but never read, the bands you pretended to like, can feel like broken shackles. But sometimes it's beautiful anyway. A dress reclaimed from costume, turned into silk skin for a Saturday night. In truth, I've been obsessed with breakups since before I was ever in a relationship. I grew up in a family thick with divorces and overpopulated by remarriages. Both sets of grandparents divorced, my mother's twice. Both my parents married three times, my oldest brother divorced by 40. Divorce seemed less like an aberration than an inevitable stage in the life cycle of any love. But... In my family, the ghosts of prior partners were rarely vengeful or embittered. 
My mother's first husband was a lanky hippie with the kindest eyes who once bought me a dream catcher. My beloved aunt's first husband was an artist who made masks from the dried palm fronds he gathered on beaches. These men enchanted me because they carried with them not only the residue of who my mom and aunt had been before I knew them, but also the spectral possibilities of who they might have become. Seventeen years after their divorce, my own parents had become so close that my mother, an Episcopal deacon, officiated my father's third wedding. Which is all to say, I grew up believing that relationships would probably end. But I also grew up with the firm belief that even after a relationship was over, it was still a part of you, and that this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. When I asked my mother what object she would contribute to the museum, she chose a shirt she had bought in San Francisco years before I was born with the woman she had loved before she met my father. I grew up with the sense that a broken relationship always amounted to more than its breakage. Everything that happened before it ended was not invalidated by the fact of it ending. Those memories of the relationship, the particular joys and frictions it held, the particular incarnation of self it permitted, didn't disappear, though the world didn't always make room for them. To speak of an ex too much was seen as a sign of some kind of pathology. The gospel of serial monogamy could have you believe that every relationship was an imperfect trial run, useful only as preparation for the relationship that finally stuck. In this model, a family full of divorces was a family full of failure. But I grew up seeing them as something else. Grew up seeing every self as an accumulation of its loves, like a Russian nesting doll that held all of those relationships inside. I'm just going to read one last piece. Exhibit 8, Plastic Bag of Pistachio Nuts, Iowa City, Iowa. Dave and I spent four years together. We moved across the country and back. We drove a U-Haul across Pennsylvania in the middle of a rainstorm, and then we did it again, two years later, headed the opposite direction. Pennsylvania surprised us with its size. Somehow it did this twice. I loved Dave with all of myself like a wet cloth wrung out. In the first apartment we shared, once things had deteriorated and we were fighting frequently, we started to notice these gray moths flitting clumsily around our kitchen. When we smashed them against the walls, their innards left silvery trails against the pale paint. We kept killing them, kept fighting, kept hoping that if we killed enough moths, if we had enough fights, then eventually we'd get rid of them for good. After several months, we discovered where the moths were coming from, a plastic bag in the pantry full of old pistachios, thick with the wet white webbing of their tiny eggs. We threw it out. I kept hoping we'd discover our equivalent of that bag, the core of all our fights, their primal source, so we could banish it. 
My breakup with Dave at the end of my 20s mattered more than any other breakup ever had and lasted longer, the loss itself and its aftermath. Dave and I had spent much of our relationship trying to figure out if our relationship could work, and I thought that breaking up would liberate us from that pull and tug. It didn't. We broke up, got back together, broke up again, then talked about getting married. Our split became my partner the way Dave had become my partner. There was an absence that held his shape, and it followed me everywhere. We often describe our ghosts as voices whispering to us, but I felt Dave as spectral ear, someone to whom I kept wanting to whisper. For years after we broke up, every thought I had was constructed partially for him. I kept a physical list of things I wanted to tell him but couldn't, mainly silly, daily things, the snow piled between my inner and outer windows during blizzards, how I dug out my own car after the storm and two lawyers had yelled at me for parking in their lot, the broiled grapefruit with a burnt sugar crust I'd eaten at our local diner without him who loved grapefruits all the men I'd seen or thought about seeing in his absence. I want a man here to touch me, I wrote, just so I'll put down this list and stop writing to you. Memories came at me like the state of Pennsylvania in a rainstorm. Every time I thought he was over, that I'd traveled through him, it turned out he wasn't over yet. I could go as many miles as I wanted and there would still be more of how it felt to lose him. I seemed okay because I said so all the time to friends and often it felt true, as if my feelings were locked away somewhere else and the key had been taken from me for my own protection. But sometimes in the night, alone, I woke up desperate for that key to open the door, to get to the locked space. Maybe he would be there, waiting. After a bad sunburn, when my skin peeled away in curling strips that wadded up like bits of dried masking tape between my fingers, I thought, this is the skin he touched. My ridiculous morning. No reasoning with it. My skin kept coming off me like shredded paper, drifting in flakes all over my clothes, my little Toyota. He was everywhere, the dust of him. Standing in an airport line, I watched a blue-eyed couple who teased each other amicably. Who would have to replace his, her passport first? He would. No, she would. He swatted her with his plush neck pillow. They had matching silver-plated luggage tags attached to their matching leather-trimmed roller duffels. In those days, I treated every couple like a crime scene to scour for clues or a recipe to steal. How did they choose their matching luggage? And how did they stand in line without bickering? And how did it feel to be grooved into a shared last name etched in silver? I wanted to feel superior to the shallow life I projected onto them, but even that meager consolation gave way to wondering, what did they have that we didn't? What could they manage that we couldn't? Perhaps the hardest thing about losing a lover is to watch the year repeat its days, Anne Carson wrote. 
It is as if I could dip my hand down into time and scoop up blue and green lozenges of April heat a year ago in another country. When I dipped my cupped palms into the past I'd shared with Dave, every remembered moment hardened into something cleaner and more purely happy than it had really been. Nostalgia rearranges the rooms of memory. It makes the beds, puts a vase of flowers on the dresser, opens the curtains to let in the sun. It gets harder and harder to say it was painful to live there. The voice of insistence goes faint. It was. Because we miss it. We miss what was hard about it. We miss it all. On the first night we ever kissed, I told Dave, I didn't feel alive. Now I do. Thanks. Great reading, Leslie. Thanks. Um, it's funny. I guess I, I want to talk mostly about questions of fiction and nonfiction. When your book, The Empathy Exams, came out in what was it, 2015? Uh, 2014. Yeah. 2014. Yeah. Um, you became kind of the avatar of the possibilities of nonfiction writing. And yet you hadn't really set out originally to write nonfiction. You studied fiction writing at Iowa, and you published a novel after you came out of Iowa. So for a long time, you were seeing yourself as only a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. um, but there's this really interesting thing that you wrote in your last book, The Recovering, about your discovery of nonfiction. Um, yeah, towards the end of The Recovering, after you'd been sober about a year and a half, and you were living alone for the first time in your adult life. You write about discovering nonfiction. Um, you'd been torturing yourself with writing a novel that wasn't <laughs> happening. And um, you traveled to Texas to research a story about people suffering from Morgellons disease. And you wrote, when I talked to these patients, standing with my little silver tape recorder in the dry Texas heat, or when I ate vending machine potato chips in a West Virginia prison, or sat on a picnic bench with weary long-distance runners, or strolled past community gardens in Harlem and asked a woman about relearning to walk. I got to listen to voices that weren't mine. It was sobriety on a different stage, showing up and paying attention. Eventually, I started seeking what the novel had been seeking all along, lives that weren't my own. The essays I started writing manifested a version of Jackson's ethos out of myself, though they often held my own life as well. Still a voice in the room, but not the only one. It was writing that was literally beyond me, and so far as it was often beyond my control, I couldn't shape what people said or how they said it. So I guess I'm wondering, do you think that nonfiction writing just kind of offers a sort of constraint, you know, the kind of constraints that people used to play with writing games, like Ulipo, where you'd try and write a novel without the letter E. Um, yeah, and what, what does that constraint do? Yeah, I think, um, 
I, I love thinking about nonfiction in terms of generative constraint. That feels very resonant to me. And it's sometimes how I've thought about the fact-checking part of the process in particular. Like when people ask me about getting fact-checked or what the experience of getting fact-checked is like, I'll sometimes describe fact-checking as... Um, operating similarly to how a formal constraint in a poem might operate that like you're hemmed in by the world in some way and you have to figure out how to create something in response to that boundary that you feel yourself coming up against um and certainly part of I love I love that you brought that passage from the recovering into the room because I think it speaks to some of what I wanted this whole collection to do. And certainly even the essay that I just read from that idea of being uh, one voice in the room, but not the only voice in the room. Um, and the way that personal experience can become part of an essay or part of a piece of nonfiction, but that that um, articulation of personal experience can live alongside acts of observation and looking at the lives of others. And in the case of the essay that I was reading from, that was like a very literal process of looking at these objects contained in the museum. And each of those objects was an artifact from the kind of lost civilization of a relationship that no longer was. And that my own articulation of um, versions of those lost civilizations could, could be in the room with those other artifacts. Um, but I think... You know, it's funny because I, I often think of nonfiction as more freeing than fiction, which feels strange on the face of it because in fiction you can, like, make things up and in nonfiction you don't. But I think that um, part of why I find the experience of writing nonfiction often feels freer to me is precisely what you're alluding to in that question, that nonfiction offers you, like, an aperture or a place to begin or a set of things to respond to. And in that posture of response, of, like, responding to another life, responding to a piece of art, responding to a piece of writing, I find, um, uh, I find a kind of footing. I find a place to begin. I find, a, I find myself already in conversation with something outside of me and there's something really conducive to speech about feeling inside of conversation in that way. It's funny, the piece that you read, um, The Museum of Broken Relationships, it could have gone a couple of different ways. It could have gone super snarky, right? <laughs> because most of the objects were pretty dumb and pathetic <laughs> and forgettable. Or it could have gone full-on pathos. And you didn't really do either of those things. I think you allowed both of them to come into the essay, mm -hmm. but you don't settle on one or the other. Mm -hmm. And instead, you enter, which is very surprising. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you had always planned to do that, you know, what the process of writing that piece was. Yeah, I think um, I wasn't, I, I knew I was probably going to be in it in some in some form because you know by the time I was writing about the Museum of Broken Relationships it had been operating for 10 years there wasn't really space nor would I have been interested in writing a kind of straight either a straight travel piece or a straight journalistic piece um describing what it was or even you know there's there are parts of the essay where I'm also doing something more like reportage like I'm interviewing um Olinka and Drajen who were the couple that broke up and then founded the museum and their backstory is itself an interesting thing. Um, but I really felt like the museum 
was most, felt most fertile to me as an occasion for meditating on what breakups mean to us and how we hold them inside of us. So I knew that at the very least, I was going to enter the essay as a kind of meditating mind that was trying to think through how do we hold these ruptured things inside of ourselves as we move through the world and why might that not be a sad thing, but a, a kind of great, rich, generative thing. Um, but I think how I came into the piece narratively was really a byproduct of this structure that I felt pretty excited about from the start, which was to create the essay itself as a kind of museum. So I did this crowdsourcing work that I described a little bit in the passage I read aloud, where I asked a lot of people in my life what objects they would donate, and then those objects became labeled as exhibits within the essay and they sort of took the form of the exhibit labels in the museum and eventually after I'd written a number of those exhibits from friends and tried to think about why those objects what did those objects hold what parts of the pain of past relationships and also the sort of self-forming aspects of broken relationships like how the objects were gesturing towards those things I started to write some objects of my own to make those objects exhibits. And it was sort of through those exhibits as footholds in the rock, I guess, that I started to launch into parts of my own story that felt like they could illuminate something in the piece that I couldn't get at otherwise, which is always why the personal enters in for me. It's not necessarily because I want it there, but it's because it's allowing me to do some kind of inquiry or some kind of exploration that wouldn't be possible without the eye in that way or without the experience that I'm narrating. It's a very tricky kind of exploration. And I feel like one of the things that, that's most compelling to me about the essays is the way that you're constantly negotiating or navigating your relation to your subjects. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there. It's so, and I mean, it, it's. I think that um, in lots of ways, that was something I was thinking about when I was reading your Acker biography as well. Was like the the ways in which a, a tricky relationship with a subject or a multi layered relationship with a subject is so much more generative and so much more interesting than a one note relationship as if we have one note relationship with anyone wherever possible anyway. Um, but certainly, I mean, so in a lot of these pieces, um, I come into a certain sort of emotional entanglement with somebody that I'm writing about. So the first essay is about this whale who um, has a, a singularly high-pitched song and becomes known to his devotees as the loneliest whale in the world. And my interest was always more with the devotees than with the whale himself and with what people were projecting onto this whale and what they were finding in him. And one of those um, sort of obsessed folks was this woman named Leonora, who I did develop this quite close personal relationship with um, as she was explaining to me, you know, you um, mention it, she comes up briefly in that section from the recovering. She discovered this whale, the figure of the loneliest whale in the world when she was recovering from a, a long coma and relearning how to walk, relearning how to speak. And I was so moved by her story, but I also felt aware, and maybe this gets to what you were saying about the two, like the possible paths of the Museum of Broken Relationships essay and how it also could have become something snarkier. You know, there was something um, 
about how Leonora spoke that was very, you know, it was, had, it was a, she was articulating a sense of cosmic connectedness. There were a lot of standalone quotes that could have looked sort of absurd. Um, but to me, they didn't feel absurd at all because it was her trying to find a language for what it felt like to rebuild a self from scratch and to kind of look to the whole world as a site of possible meanings that she could cobble together in rebuilding that self from scratch. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to like honor her in the, in those pages, but, but not deform her, like let some of her absurdity in, but also let in the context of what that absurdity was railing against and what it was trying to rebuild from. Um, and in other pieces, I, you know, struggle a little bit more overtly with, uh, you know, maybe telling a story about somebody that's different from the story they would have told about themselves, which is always the predicament of the journalist and her subject, right, is that you're not there to transcribe someone's own interior narrative of their life. You're there to, um, to, to tell their story as you see it and to place it within a context of other voices and to give what the external gaze can give that an introspective voice can't. So, um, but I'm, I, I'm interested in what's fraught and in that process and how it sort of speaks to something about how we relate to other people generally, which is that we're always doing a kind of violence to other people when we see them differently than they see themselves and why not make that also part of the subject of what the piece is describing yeah you like them but you don't like them too much <laughs> um I thought a lot about that um and about questions of empathy so well, let me just read this question to you I probably can't paraphrase it as well um, so in the title essay of Empathy Exams, you, you're working as a medical actor, um, which is a class where student doctors are being trained in empathy. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about empathy with you. It seems bracingly absent in your work. Hmm. You consider your subjects and their situations with an open, cool, appraising eye, as free of prejudice and bias as anyone can be, but you keep them at arm's length. And then almost invariably, you introduce your own experience into the account, but in a very careful way, carving out the space between yourself and mm -hmm. your subjects. Mm -hmm. You do this so consistently that it feels almost like a hidden object lesson or a manifesto. Mm -hmm. What are the dangers of empathy? And do you think it's a false romance? Yeah, I love that, I I love that idea of empathy as a false romance. Um, I have to think about that longer, but I, I certainly think, you know, um, part of what you were saying about the way that bringing the self into dialogue with another person's experience, I think that gesture can often be understood as conflation or parallel, like that that's the only reason you would bring your experiences into the same piece um, as somebody else's is if you were trying to equate them somehow. And this idea that you might bring your experiences into the frame in order to carve some space of difference or however you put it, um, I think is really right. Like the, the idea that you can um, think about things in relation to each other in a way that doesn't have to involve conflation. So like, um, you know, bringing my experiences into the breakup museum is not to say that my breakup is just like anyone else's, but is to say all of these things can speak to each other in their differences. And to me, that connects to empathy, well, in a lot of ways, but one of them is that 
empathy is always it's we always have to think about it as the false romance or a kind of delusion because we actually will never know what another person is thinking or feeling we'll never understand it completely we'll never feel it the same way my breakup isn't the same as anybody else's breakups the reason to think about things in relation to each other isn't to pretend there's no difference between them in the same way that to speak of empathy isn't to pretend we can completely inhabit somebody else's state of mind it's to come up against the limits, I think, and to recognize the limits of what we can understand. One of the things that was strange to me about the reception of the empathy exams, which was, it was an exciting reception in many ways, but I sort of got um, understood as like the great proselytizer of empathy or like empathy's great (laughs) champion. Um, And I do, I think that the inevitable failure of empathy is a useful failure and a generative failure, but I, I kind of felt like the whole book was saying empathy is impossible not empathy is my jam you know I mean it was like it's sort of you know so I sort of and I, but I felt like that gap that gap which felt so crucial to what I was trying to diagram right. got sort of lost in translation some, some sometimes you know and that really I think of empathy as a kind of like a wrestling and like a, a hurling yourself again and again at the impossible rather than an achievement or a completion or a consummation I know when I read your work, I mean, among a lot of other things on a meta level, it seems like this kind of greatly ethical project, Mm. kind of a model of how we can consider ourselves in relation to others. You know, you're pretty open and fair-minded, but I think your accuracy Mm. is what makes your treatment of them the fairest of all, because you're not romanticizing them in any way. So do you think that accuracy is the greatest gift that you can give to another person? (laughs) I think, um, yeah, I mean, I love, I feel like accuracy, I love that you use that word because I think accuracy doesn't always get a fair shake as like an exciting noun you know it's like when favorite, you do as a writer that's kind of my favorite word yeah. well we were ta- we were I, we were talking a little bit about accuracy earlier in this way that was illuminating to me as well and um yeah I mean I think that um I think the the gift of accuracy is connected to what we were talking about a little bit at the very beginning of the conversation uh, this notion of nonfiction as a generative constraint or fact-checking is a generative constraint because fact-checking is like another person humbling you by bringing you back to a greater accuracy than you were able to achieve by yourself, which is part of why I try to think of fact-checking as a collaborative humbling. There's there's something shame shaming a little bit about being fact-checked, like you got this thing wrong. Actually, the, the passage that I read aloud I had um, a very shameful fact check on, which was that I had initially written that passage as um, Marina Abramovich and Ulai shaking hands when they met at the center of the Great Wall. And somebody who, it actually got past a couple of magazine editors and a friend was reading it and he said, oh, no, no, they they hugged. And um, I felt in that moment that I was not only ashamed of what I'd gotten wrong, but maybe understanding like why I'm not friends with any of my exes really like that I had sort of like mistaken the, the hug for a, I put a, a handshake where there should have been a hug. Um, but in that moment, it's like, right, like what was I, what, um, what, what was at stake in that, in that 
humbling was was accuracy and was an accuracy that really mattered because the emotional inflection of an embrace is so different from the emotional inflection of a handshake and you know there's something interesting probably in why I got it wrong and so in that sense accuracy can illuminate in a couple of different directions at once um but I mean I think part of what accuracy does is it asks us to get sharper in our thinking about why something is the way that it is. And it asks us to be more, that much more nuanced in our responses because we can't bend the world to be what we wish it was to fit our thesis statements. We have to like fit our reactions and our responses and our analyses to be kind of attuned to the complexities of what the world is instead. So it's really a model of thinking and thinking harder and thinking deeper and thinking subtler I think that's so much of what accuracy demands of us yeah that's fantastic I think it'd be a good idea now if we heard from a few other yeah, people let's get um, some questions. would anybody like to ask a question or make a statement Say more about what you mean. Well, you can say that they hug instead of saying they shook hands, but either way, whatever you do that's reacting to their experience is still going to be there in some way. I'm going to read your, your experience or your rendition of their reconciliation or their meeting up, not reconciliation. Um, I'll read it, if you write it, I'll read it the way you see it, which is as a handshake, no matter what their body shape is, hmm. or you think this should have been. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think um, part of what resonates for me and what you're saying is the idea of, I mean, I, I guess I would say that I think not that accuracy is impossible, but that objectivity is impossible, which maybe are different ways of saying the same thing or just different ways of saying different things. But um, for me, I think I'm, I'm interested in writing nonfiction in a way that uh, is accurate about everything that can be fact-checked about it, but that I recognize that in the act of telling any story, even if it's nonfiction, there's huge amounts of subjectivity going into exactly some of the things that you're talking about. What I choose to say and what I leave unsaid, how I frame or respond to every single fact in a piece. And that's kind of where the the soul of the thing lies and that I'm I'm not interested in that subjectivity as a kind of 
taint or a form of pollution or something that's wrong with a piece I'm interested in it as a you know a form of truth and just like consciousness on the page and so you know um when you're talking about the kind of leaps between the lily pads of the facts like yes I think that's such a beautiful language or image for the ways in which even if you are describing a set of facts in a in a piece of nonfiction, the arrangement of those facts and the meaning making that's happening around those facts, like those are all the leaps between the lily pads and um and that's so much of where the the truths that are being articulated is so much of where they dwell. And there's a an essay in the piece uh, in the in the collection about reincarnation that I revised quite pretty radically for the collection from the original magazine iteration of the piece, which came out in Harper's in 2015, maybe, and was a pretty, like, straight reported piece. I mean, as straight as I ever get as a reporter. Um, But it was so... Like, I feel like I let myself leap a lot more in the in the revision that became part of the book, not because I changed or distorted any of the facts, but because I allowed myself to get much deeper into questions of, like, why was I so fascinated by reincarnation? Why was I so invested in defending these families that believed that their children had been reincarnated from tobacco farmers or World War II naval pilots? Um... And that kind of questioning of what I found beautiful about that belief system, um, it didn't involve changing any of the facts, but it did involve um, sort of bringing the inquiry a few layers deeper. And in in the case of my own relationship to that subject, part of it was about... um, Part of it was about the fact that I was getting really involved in 12-step recovery when I was when I was looking at these families that believed in reincarnation and that some of the things that I found beautiful about recovery in terms of proposing that lives are in certain ways interchangeable and that what we live is is inescapably unoriginal are like uh, made really concrete and really explicit and by reincarnation, which is to say, yes, your life is unoriginal because you were. Uh, World War II naval air pilot before you were a child in Louisiana um, and that that was part of what felt beautiful to me and but in that sense it was like the same lily pads but a different kind of movement between them Yeah, um, I mean it's so different in each in each case. Um, one of the most gratifying responses I got, and which is not to say that it was one of the most comfortable responses I got, but um, the that same reincarnation piece that I was just talking about, um, it profiles a, a set of families whose kids have past life memories, but it. it also really tracks a particular researcher at the University of Virginia who's compiling a database of these families and these children. And, um, you know, he was another example of somebody who wanted me to, to tell a different story than the one I ended up telling. Essentially, he wanted me to, to say that, you know, I believed that he had discovered the mechanisms by which reincarnation is possible, and he had a, th- a theory of reincarnation that drew on a set of experiments in the history of physics, and the physics historians who I interviewed didn't like really 
uh, when they looked at 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 his account in the discipline of physics, they didn't see it the same way he did, right? So I wasn't I wasn't putting on the page what he wanted me to put on the page, but and you know and in in the version in the collection, I let myself get much more honest about the kind of fraught texture of that process where I can like. When I listened to my interviews with him, our little tape-recorded interviews, I could hear my own anxiety, like, so present in the interviews, where I was literally saying things to him like, well, you know, it's it's such a part of the journalistic encounter that the, the journalist doesn't always say the things about the subject that the subject wants him to say. You know, where I was, just, I looked back and I was like, why was I saying these things to this man as if I was going to inoculate both of us against this sort of, like, turning when it happened? But... When the piece when the piece finally ran, he wrote me a note to say, you know, um, I think we really don't agree about a lot of things, but I think you were very. <laughs> I can hear the laughter of one of my best friends from high school. It's like a it's like a lullaby to me. Um, but he said, you know, I think um, I think we don't agree about a lot of things, but um, you know, I feel like your piece was was fair minded. Actually, was the word he used, and that you let the complexity of the issues onto the page. And I guess. Um, you know, when I think about how I respond or would respond to various subjects, that's the thing I, I hope I can say that I did is like grant each and every one of those subjects like the dignity of complexity on the page, which is an alternative to um, the indignity of like serving a writer's thesis statement, you know, becoming a sort of a, a piece of evidence filed underneath an argument about the world, which is, um, which is not the kind of robust condition of humanity that I think people always embody and deserve to embody on the page as well. Yeah, like what, whether I've, I felt that way that I'm always kind of living at our, or like living in anticipation of the possible narrated version of an experience. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah sometimes. And I, you know, uh, I remember once having a conversation with my brother where we were talking about a piece of writing in which he appeared and, and, uh, and he asked, like, is at a certain point I could hear like his voice change, and he was like, "Is this conversation going to become part of a piece of writing?" It was sort of like, "Where are the edges of this, like, constantly expanding field of articulation that we're living inside of?" Um, I mean, I think one answer to that question is like, I always am living in anticipation of how an experience might be narrated, but I'm not sure it's just because I'm a writer. Like, I think that I think that lots of people live inside some version of that, whether it, it's like. You, you know, you're going through some experience at work and thinking about how you're how you might narrate that experience to your partner when you get home at the end of the day, or thinking about you know how you might describe a fight you're having with your partner to like your girlfriend the next day, or like I think there, it's for me, and maybe this is um, a kind of tautological statement that says more about me than it does about the condition of living, but I think that we're we're, we're we're sort of constantly fitting experience into some sort of story, whether or not we plan to make that story an essay or a piece of fiction or something that would show up in a book. And and I guess to that end, I don't necessarily think of it as um, the 
an obstacle to like inhabiting experience or the opposite of inhabiting experience. For me, it's, it's sort of part of inhabiting a situation, um, which isn't to say that like, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll be inside of a moment and really, you know, go to a place where I'm thinking about literally like a sentence that I might write about it. And in those moments, it does feel a little bit like, okay, experience has been abstracted somehow because I'm like now anticipating being at the desk. But I think in that, in that sort of more intuitive back and forth way that I'm sort of like inside of something, but also thinking about the story of my own life and how this moment is part of that story. All of that feels like knitted into the experience of living rather than kind of like the opposite of the experience of living or like a pushing away or an obstruction of the experience of living. They're, 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 um, they're intertwined rather than being competing gods. Uh, yes, the person there, hi. Um, yeah, so, I think, um, one of, I don't know, it's like choosing a favorite child, although some essays definitely were more fun than others. Um, I think the first essay in the collection about the loneliest whale in the world was, was like deeply meaningful and often really pleasurable to write. I think part of it, I think part of it was that I was still learning, I mean, am still learning how to be a reporter. And so the kinds of reporting that I was doing for that piece, like going to Whidbey Island off the uh, coast in Puget Sound and talking to a, you know, an acoustic technician who tracked the whale or, you know, meeting up with Leonora and going to the final art show at her community center in Harlem to see the painting that she had made of the loneliest whale in the world over the course of the preceding five weeks. Like all of this felt like, I mean, it felt nerve wracking, but in this way, like to figure out how to have conversations with people where they would reveal themselves to me, um, all of that felt like, you know, it made me feel sweaty. Like it made me feel nervous. Um, but it was also for that reason deeply exciting to be doing something that I didn't quite know how to do. There's something that feels more alive about doing a kind of work that you're not entirely sure how to do. So I think the fact that reporting was kind of still nerve wracking for me and honestly like, yeah, is still sometimes nerve wracking for me meant that there was something not always comfortable, but always pretty electric about the process. And it also like returned me often to this state of awe, which maybe gets to what you were saying, Chris, about like um, sort of uh, nonfiction as, as um, a fixed point, there being a quality of a fixed point about it. And I think that state of awe at like the world, like who knew that there was a woman out there recovering from a coma who identified so deeply with a blue whale that she had never seen and would never see like, I didn't know that that had happened in the world. I felt surprised by that. I felt in awe of that. I felt kind of wonder at that. And I feel that way about all kinds of things. I feel a state of wonder about all kinds of things. And um, I think the, the way, some of the reported pieces in this collection really like hold a lot of the 
residue of that experience of wonder um, in a way that hopefully doesn't feel too simple or too hagiographic or anything like that, but can just sort of say like the world is a, is a strange and like amazing place. And sometimes we get to write that down and think about it and like what a, what a great thing to call a job, you know? Okay, we have time for two more questions and there they are. You? Yeah, um, well, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, it's like a it's like a question where the problem has already become the subject in some way. Like the question already contains part of its answer. Um, and I should just quickly tag that that piece of advice um, that the problem with an essay can sometimes become its subject um, was was something that my great mentor. Charlie D'Ambrosio once said to me, so I always, I always try to uh, credit him with it. But um, I think, you know, sometimes when I think about balancing, like, articulating a belief with acknowledging the ways one can be skeptical or are articulating a truth while simultaneously acknowledging that it's common or cliche, like that kind of the, the tightrope walking that you're talking about where you sort of try to hold multiple truths alongside of each other or stand behind something and interrogate it at once. Or like, um, I guess I sometimes think about it as like post-interrogation faith where you like interrogate something or question it or really try to wrestle with it. And then on the other side of that interrogation or on the other side of that wrestling, you say, yes, like I have wrestled with this thing and I have seen the holes in this thing and I stand behind it anyway. Um, I think a lot of what I really try to offer in the midst of those interrogations is like a good story too. Like I, I, like in the case of um, the loneliest whale in the world, like it wouldn't feel like enough to me to simply say in the abstract, like um, people tell themselves stories about this whale that helped them survive. If it just becomes a kind of conceptual or intellectual wrestling match where I sort of acknowledge that those things are projections, but also say sometimes projections are useful, like these things could be true and they could feel intellectually rigorous, but there's actually a kind of truth that you can only get at, I think, when you tell the particular stories in their particularity and like let Leonora live on the page in her community center in Harlem with her painting of the whale on the wall like when you have all of the like grain and grit and concreteness and externality and like tangible livedness of that story I think it does a lot to like anchor the kind of wrestling or the kind of like allowing both truths to be there at once so I haven't 
read your essay and I don't even know what it's about, but I guess my impulse often would be in the case of things where the almost like untenability of a story has become part of the subject, like to not let go of the story entirely, like to let that the story in its in its vitality and its and its momentum and its and its actual texture of experienceness, like to let some of that onto the page um, in order to be wrestled with, because I think it gives a reader um, it gives a reader spaces to inhabit and things to hold on to and things to be compelled and gripped by, and I think those things are are really important too. Yeah, I love that formulation, by the way, that, that there are these moments where where the id shows up or where um, where the kind of narrator of these essays is feeling things that she shouldn't feel in some way or that um, some people might be ashamed to feel, like um, kind of disdainful condescension towards couples with matching luggage tags or, you know, in the uh, first essay you mentioned, which is a, an essay in the collection called Layover Story, where I'm narrating... Uh, uh, a layover. I was at one point earlier in this tour. I was I was introduced as uh, somebody said Leslie Jameson's subjects include um, blue whales, reincarnation, and layovers, airport layovers. And I was like, oh, that sounds really <laughs> exciting. Uh, the bard of airport layovers. Um, but I I am talking about this difficult woman who I was on this layover with and how my own perceptions of her kept deepening and shifting across the course of our 36 hours together. And I think that piece, part of why I wanted that piece to be part of this collection is because it's full of, um, it's full of unromanticized feelings. It's full of, um, feeling kind of tired and feeling sick of people and feeling judgmental and that, all of those things live inside of and alongside of um, the feelings of compassion or self-extension that we might direct towards the people that we meet. And so and then maybe it connects to that way that empathy isn't um, a triumph, but a kind of delusion or a beautiful but ultimately futile kind of struggle or attempt um, that I, I very much, I believe that, uh, I believe that our emotional lives are complicated. I believe that we always do things for multiple reasons at once. I believe that at any given moment or in any given relationship, we are like a, a palimpsest of like beautiful feelings and ugly ones, you know, and, and that, um, and that to let all of those things onto the page isn't to invalidate 
any of them or even to diminish any of them. It's like to accentuate all of them and to let them be whole and complicated um, in the same way that like the idea of the innocent victim is totally toxic because why does somebody need to be innocent in order to be victimized? It's such a fallacy, you know, that anybody is innocent at all. Um, but that, that sense of like letting in the parts of our emotional lives that we feel we might not have the right to has always felt like a central part of my project to me it's always felt like um a gift to me as a reader when other writers can do that can like let the the sort of uh less appealing or less noble parts of a psyche sort of live on the page because that grants um it grants consciousness fullness and it grants consciousness the room to be messy and like what is literature for if not that you know so but I love that idea of the when, when and how the, the emotional id shows up on the page. May we always seek those spaces. So, yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.